Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 8. It's the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's what we've been looking at through the summer months. You guys enjoying your summer? Yes. Didn't sound too enthusiastic there. It's pretty hot, horribly hot, but in spite of that, it's still been a great summer, hasn't it? As we've been especially working through Romans 8. Romans 8, 28 through 30 is what we'll be looking at this morning. More than conquerors. An astounding promise is the title of this weekend's message. I've still been doing the cards, three by five cards, and memorizing. Last, uh, last week's uh, message, uh, the verses were a little bit more difficult, and so I haven't uh, memorized all of those, but these were a little easier. Of course, I've, I've known these for many years, and so, uh, wow, powerful stuff this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, take a look at your sermon notes. There is a joy in God that the worst kind of suffering cannot destroy. Do you agree with that? Yes. Absolutely. Not enough of you agree with that. Let me say that again. There is a joy in God that the worst kind of suffering cannot destroy. Yes. I mean, I agree with that, but I don't always live like that, okay? Would you guys more like, like, yeah, okay. So that's why we need messages like this. There is no person or thing or circumstance that can take away the joy that God gives. I gave you some verses of reference there, part of your intro. Uh, John 16, 22, before Jesus exited this planet, uh, he told his disciples, I'm going to give you a joy that no one can rob you of. And uh, Peter, writing to second-generation Christians, he's a first-generation Christian because he encountered the, the risen Christ, and so he's writing to them and he says, uh, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible? Yeah, indescribable. Glorious? Yeah, indestructible joy. And he's talking about what we have in faith in our faith in Jesus Christ. First John 1, 4 basically says it's in intimacy with, with Christ. And it's knowing him, it's walking with him, enjoying him. And, uh, and as I shared last weekend, I'm gonna really emphasize it this weekend, it's not the suffering that destroys us. Listen to me, and I'm not minimizing what you might be going through currently or what you have been through. It's not the suffering that destroys us. It's not your difficulties. It's your self-pity. It's your bitterness, and it's your hopelessness that destroys you. It's our lack of character. It's our lack of character, and that's what we need desperately. The opposite of joy is not sadness. Oftentimes when I ask people, what's the opposite of joy? They say, oh, sadness. No, that's not true. It's actually what? Anybody? It's hopelessness. Because the Bible, as Christians, we are to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10. Almost sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't. So we should be really sorrowful over the brokenness and the sin and the suffering that we see on this planet Earth, and at the same time be filled with hope, hope with the gospel, the promise of what we have in Jesus Christ. Not sequential, those aren't happening sequentially, but simultaneously, that we're... we're broken and sad over all that's going on in this world, and at the same time, we have hope in Christ. And so here's my question for us this morning, that's what we're going to explore, is so what is the basis of this joy? So that when I don't have the joy, what do I need to keep coming back to 
to nurture that joy in my heart. That's where we're headed. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to read this text and unpack these notes. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your help in understanding this text. We pray that you would illuminate it to our hearts, to our minds. Father God, you so loved us and hate suffering that you were willing to send your son down and get involved in it. Your son Jesus took the only suffering that could destroy us on the cross on our behalf for our sins so that by grace through faith in him, when we suffer, we would be more than conquerors. We would suffer well by becoming more like him. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us the basis of this indescribable, indestructible joy that we have in you that the worst kind of suffering cannot destroy. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. amen. So let's take a look at this text. Wonderful text. Maybe you've memorized these verses. Romans, Romans 8.28. How many have memorized Romans 8.28? Okay, I'm going to have you come on up here and go ahead and recite it. Right now, okay. Oh, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can do it on the spot. I mean, it's one of those verses, and I memorized it out of the NIV, and so I'll probably quote it in that, but here's the ESV, English Standard Version. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So I, I memorize it in the NIV where it goes something like this. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then he, he unpacks this and helps us to understand what that means in verse 29. So what, is, what is his purpose? What is God wanting to do by working all things for my good? What is the good? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, he's, he wants to conform us into the image of his son, but that's in the context of being children of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. I just quoted 1 John 3, 1 there, and that's, that's what he's, he's invited us into his family. He brings us into his family into relationship with him, and then in that relationship, he conforms us into the image of his son. That's his purpose for us. And then in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word for us this weekend. Amazing stuff, absolutely amazing and astounding promise. So in these three verses, there are three statements that give us the basis of our joy. Here's the three statements. You can see them on your outline, that our bad things will work for our good, our bad things will work for our good. Our truly good things can never be taken from us, and the best is yet to come. That's, that's the three statements. That becomes the basis of our joy. Anytime you are stuck in self-pity or bitterness or hopelessness, it's because you're not thinking out the implications of, of what you have in Jesus Christ. You're not thinking that out. You're not spending time interacting with God and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to make that real to your heart. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we work through each of these. So first of all, number one, my bad things will work together for my good. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So let's, I, I just basically, you can see on your notes, I just went through these verses and kind of broke them down into bite-sized pieces. And so the first one is that we know, 
Here's your first fill in the blank. It's not just clear to the mind, but real to the heart. So this idea of no, it's not just this truth is intellectually coherent. It's got to be more than intellectually coherent. It's got to be existentially compelling, experientially compelling to you. It's got to move from your head to your heart. Big deal. You can recite it. You got to live it. You got you to experience this. And you do that through meditation, memorization of God's word, and allowing the Holy Spirit to light this logic on fire in your heart. And that's so we know. You got to know this. You need to know this. You need to know it. You need to experience this. And um, we know what? All things. Does that include the positive things? Yes. Does that include the negative things? Yes. Does that include the painful things? That's your fill in the blank. Yes. Does that include the pleasurable things? Yes. All things. All things. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, a number of other hymns. He puts it this way, everything is necessary that he sins, nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So, in other words, if he sins it, it must be playing an important role in my life. If he doesn't send it, it must not be needed for me to live for his glory in my joy. We know all things, here's the next one, work together. The word there, the Greek word is, uh, we get our word synergy from. It's a fascinating word. What it means is it is the sum total. So work together means it is the sum total of all things that God is overruling, shaping, and mastering. Now, notice that he's not saying, he's not saying and he's not taking the individual things of your life. Some things, some things in our life, some things in and of themselves are not good things. They're very bad things. Cancer is a very bad thing. Divorce would be a very bad thing. But what he's saying is that all things work together, all together with what God is doing in your life. All together. So some things in and of themselves are bad things, but they work together. It is the sum total of all things that God is overruling, shaping, and mastering. Now, here's a pop quiz. I like you to do this from time to time. And so you can discuss, with, uh, discuss this with the folks sitting around you. My question for you is, uh, I told you last weekend that there are three attributes of God that you need to be intimately aware of and experience in your life if you're going to get through difficulties. What are those three attributes of God that you need to know intimately? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, some of you are just looking, are just sitting there and kind of looking at me, kind of staring at me. And uh, it's like, what the heck, what did he just ask? I'm not really sure I'm even awake right now. I still need to drink some more coffee. I'm not really sure I'm really here. Where are we right now? Someone tell me. Help me out here. Uh, so you guys remember uh, Psalm 9, 9 and 10? The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name, those who know his name. Name, character, three attributes. God is perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, and unlimited in power. You need to know all three of those if you're going to get through the difficulties of your life. And so that's, that's those three attributes that he's, he loves us, he's wise, 
Is he, is he smarter than us? Does he know what's in our best interest? Yeah, so in his perfect love, he wants what is best for you in his infinite wisdom. In his perfect love, he wants what is best for you in his infinite wisdom. He knows what is best for you and in his unlimited power, he's gonna do it. He's gonna do it. So, for we know that all things work together, and we're gonna get to the good in just a minute, but let me kind of explain this idea of work together, give you an example. Have you been watching the Olympics? Anybody? You guys aren't very excited. You guys, some of you don't even know the Olympics are on. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I've been, but this is how you do it, by the way. Okay, let me just show you. Professional Olympic watcher right here. And uh, you got to do the DVR. There's way too many commercials. They will kill you with commercials and all the extra stuff you don't need to know. So I do the DVR, do it all day long, and then, man, I can zip through that. I can watch 10 hours of Olympics in 15 minutes, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, not quite that fast, but man, and so we've been enjoying the Olympics, a lot of fun to watch that, uh, and so my wife uh, decided this last Monday night that uh, we're going to have a, a Brazilian meal, and it was good, it was good stuff, and, uh, and as she made this, one of the things that she made to kind of top it off was Brazilian coconut cream cake. Baby. So as she's laying out all the ingredients on the kitchen counter, the flour, the baking soda, the raw eggs, the vanilla extract, the coconut, and there's a number of other ingredients there. What is fascinating about it as she was putting this cake together is that almost everything that goes into Brazilian coconut cake by itself tastes terrible. I mean, think about it. I mean, flour. Here, have a, have a spoonful of flour. Enjoy. Or how about baking soda or raw eggs? Anybody here eat raw eggs? Okay. They might, yeah. Okay. There's, okay. Yeah. Okay. No, they're not. Okay. <laughs> and I don't know why you're eating them. Hey, scramble those babies up. Put a little cheese on them, little bacon bits. Woo! Not raw eggs. That's horrible. You just put it in your mouth, kind of suck on it for a little while. Oh, that's gross. Okay, sorry, I got off track there. Vanilla extract, uh, you know, pretty strong. Coconut, I could, I could do that. I can do that. But what's interesting is that as she begins to mix all this together, there's this delicious uh, metamorphosis. I can't talk. But a delicious metamorphosis takes place when she skillfully mixes all of the right ingredients and amounts and bakes them at the perfect temperature. And the final product is that Nancy killed me with deliciousness. <laughs> and so I had like a just gigantic piece, but I'm counting calories so I had this gigantic piece, and so I had to wait, and then so the next night I had another gigantic piece, <laughs> and then the following night I had another gigantic piece, and so, uh, I just, I've been, I, hey, I've been pacing myself through this, <laughs> but it's, it's just fascinating. That's what God's doing in our lives. He takes all the ingredients, the good, the bad, the ugly, blends it together at the right temperature, and oh my goodness, he wants to bring about a beautiful product in you to put on display his glory and his goodness. 
God is at work passionately, purposefully, and powerfully in the best and worst of times doing a thousand things we can't see with our finite minds. And here's the good, for good. We know all things work together for good. Verse 29, this is the fill in the blank, conform to the image of his son. That's what he wants. Verse 29 explains, verse 28, that your life would kill others with the deliciousness of the Savior. That's what he wants. That's what he has in store. This is having the kind of character that displays that Christ is more desirable, more satisfying than all that life could give or death could take away. And that's what he's wanting to do. This promise is only for those. That's the next point. For those. He uses that two times. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is not for everybody. And I've heard unbelievers use that. Well, everything will work for good. No, it won't. Not for, not for you. I don't say that to their face. That's not very kind. But maybe at some point I can speak that to them. Hey, all things will work out for my good. No, it won't. Did you read that verse? Where'd you get that verse anyway? You ripped it off from God. And it's not going to work for you like that. I don't know where you got that. Because actually, the, the, quite the opposite is true for people that don't know Christ. Because this is for those who know Christ. This promise is for every believer in Christ Jesus. But we've got to define belief. It's not just believing in God in some general way. Because I ask people all the time, hey, you believe in God? Yeah, I believe in God. What do you believe? What is it that you believe? You have a relationship with him? Do you know what that means? Because that's what it's talking about. Not just some general belief in God. It's talking about having a relationship with God. And so that's when he uses the phrase here, we love God and are called according to his purpose. Are you, do you love God or are you called according to his purpose? Do you even know what it means to be called according to his purpose? So how do, how do you know that's actually for you then if, you don't, if you're not living in the reality of that? See, belief is more than agreement with facts in the head about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That, that's part of it. There is this agreement in the head, in the mind, intellectually about the person and work of Jesus Christ. You begin to see what Christ has done for you. But it's more than seeing it. You become seized by it. It's more than agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites and desires to the point that it moves you to obedience to him. You want to live your life for him and for his glory. John 14, 21 talks about our love is displayed in our obedience to him. First John 4.19, you could probably complete this verse. It's an easy verse to memorize. We love him because he first loved us. We loved him because he swept us off of our feet with his sacrificial love for us. We were smitten by his beauty and his glory, and we were never, ever the same as a result of that. Uh, A favorite verse of mine that kind of describes this love, who love God. This is the the kind of love that God wants you to have an experience in your own life, and then your response to him will be, this extravagant love back to him. It's Psalm 63.3. His steadfast love is better than life. His steadfast love is better than life. What that tells me is that his steadfast love is better than the best marriage on this planet. 
His steadfast love is better than the best kids on this planet. His steadfast love is better than the best job on this planet. Uh, his steadfast love is better than all the medals that uh, Michael Phelps has won now. How many medals? Gold medals? 23. Actually, last night was his uh, 23, 28, all combining. And uh, that doesn't compare, even come close to God's steadfast love for us. His steadfast love is better than 23 gold medals from the Olympics. And which, by the way, it's kind of interesting. I've had a couple of people now uh, uh, put uh, on my Facebook wall uh, two articles. I don't know how reliable they are, but when uh, Michael Phelps was crashing and burning over a year or so ago, you guys remember that? Probably saw it on the news. Had a couple of DUIs, went into a behavioral health facility just outside of Phoenix here. His longtime friend, uh, Ray Lewis, you guys know who Ray Lewis is? Uh, NFL star, uh, commentator for ESPN, contacted him and said, hey, dude, you need to get God in your life, and gave him a book of uh, Rick Warren's uh, Purpose Driven Life, and there's something that's happened, and I'm praying to God that he has had an encounter with Jesus, because they, they, everybody's saying that there's something that's happened in his life. In fact, even last night on the interview, did you, did, if you heard it, he mentioned Ray Lewis. He's been in conversation with Ray Lewis throughout this time, so... I've got my hopes out there, hoping that he's truly encountered Christ. Because listen, you guys know this. All the gold medals in the world can't satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's why he was crashing and burning. He needed a sense of purpose that transcended being an Olympian and having all those gold medals. There's a hole in our soul. Listen to me. There's a hole in our soul that only Christ can satisfy. Only Christ can fill. His steadfast love is better, is better it's better than life. So this is how we put it here. This is kind of a classic statement here at Desert Breeze. We don't serve him. We don't follow him. We don't obey him because he makes life better. We serve him. We follow him. We obey him because he is better than life. He is better than life. You have never, ever, ever tasted anything so good than knowing him, walking with him, and enjoying him. That's what the Bible says, and that's, that's the life that he offers us. It's absolutely amazing. And so when you've encountered his love, oh my goodness, you respond with extravagant love back to him, and it transforms your life. It transforms your life. And then you can say, as we mentioned last week, Job 13, 15, Job was able to say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, my life's in his hands. And I, I will obey all that he says, whether I agree with him or not, and I will accept all that he sins, whether I understand it or not, because his love is better than life. Let me read to you. This is uh, from uh, John Piper from his book, uh, Future Grace. Listen to what he says as we kind of summarize this verse. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And this is what he says about that verse. He says, if you live inside this massive promise, your life is more solid, stable than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside Romans 8.28, all is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise of all of all encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and alcohol and numbing TV and dozens of futile uh, diversions. There are slate walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial 
uh, retirement plans. There are cardboard fortifications of deadbolt, uh, deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside are a thousand substitutes for Romans 8.28. Listen to what he says. Once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. Now, this is what I found really interesting. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good, all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. When God's people really live by the future grace of Romans 8.28, from measles to the mortuary, they are the freest and strongest and most generous people in the world. Their light shines and people give glory to their Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. Now, let me uh, give you one other quote from Jonathan Edwards. That's why Jonathan Edwards is able to say, he's almost like he's taunting suffering. He says, come on, graves. Come on, crosses. He's almost like saying, bring it on. Bring the worst thing on. It doesn't matter. This isn't going to break me. It's going to make me. That's what he says here. He says, come on, graves. Come on, crosses. The lower you lay me, the higher you'll raise me. The more you try to destroy me, the more you will make me. Now, now why, why would he say that? Because our lives are not in the grip of blind chance or fate, but in the hands of a creator who in his infinite love wants what is best for you in his his, his unbelievable wisdom knows what is best for you. He knows what is best for you and in his unlimited power, he's gonna do it. He's working in our lives. Therefore, suffering, suffering will, will relate to our character as fire relates to gold. Instead of destroying us, it will refine us, strengthen us, and beautify us like nothing else. So let me ask you this. So when the difficulties hit your life, are you allowing those things to beautify you are they making you bitter and broken? It really comes down to, are you, are you gonna believe Romans 8.28? Are you gonna put your faith in this God who loves you and is wise and is gonna take care of you through thick and thin, through all the difficulties that you're going through? I gave you some examples there. Uh, Genesis 50.20 is the life of Joseph. Job 1.21 and 2.10 is the life of Job. And then, of course, Philippians 1.12 is Paul, the Apostle Paul. You guys are familiar with the life of Joseph. You can read about his story in Genesis 27 through 50. How many are familiar with Joseph? story of Joseph, Old Testament? Man, I would encourage you to read it because it's, it's really profound. Here's a dude uh, that was uh, favored, felt like he had certain promises from God, certainly had some vision for his life, but he was arrogant. He was full of himself, and he kind of taunted his his brothers with that kind of rubbed their noses in it and they didn't like it they despised him and what did they do uh, they stripped him of his uh, colorful robe and threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery that's that's what you do when you don't like someone okay I guess and uh, well that's what they did and then they went home and told dad hey a wild animal ate him up sorry dad and then, and if you're familiar with the rest of the story, there's some really horrible things that happen. But he goes from, from the pit to the palace, second in command of all of Egypt. And what's fascinating about this story is that if Joseph hadn't been betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and forgotten in prison for years, he would have never escaped his own deadly character flaws. 
He would have never been able to redeem his own family from its generation's deep sins, nor would he have been able to save thousands of people from famine. It's all part of God's providential care. And God often uses our trouble to rescue us from our own flaws and make us great. Now, here's what's fascinating. I knew that you could tell when... uh, Joseph was getting over his past hurts, and I can always tell when you're getting over your past hurts. I can tell when I'm getting over my past hurts. We all have past hurts. But I can always tell when any of us are getting over them because you can see it in Genesis 50.20. Genesis 50.20 is the Old Testament uh, of Romans 8.28. It's the Old Testament verse of Romans 8.28, version, you might say. And so this is what he does. So his dad passes away, his dad dies, and uh, his brothers show up, and they're freaking out because they're thinking, oh, oh our brother's going to get even with us now that he's second in command of all of Egypt, and we're here in his presence, and he's going to kill us. He's going to take us out. And this is what Joseph does. He looks into the eyes of his perpetrators. He's not in denial. And he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, for what is now being done the saving of many lives. And I know some of you have gone through extreme, extreme suffering and difficulty and even abuse and heartache. And I'm just telling you that what the enemy intended to destroy you with, God intended it for good. And God will use that powerfully in your life to touch many people's lives. You are and you will be a trophy of God's amazing grace. And that's, that's it. That's what he's saying here. Praise God. That's what he's saying here. For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay, there's more to it here, okay? It even just keeps getting better, but it, gets, it goes into a real difficult uh, section here. And uh, so here's the next one. So my bad things will work for my good. My truly good things can't be taken from me. And so before I read the next uh, two verses, we've already read them, and maybe you just kind of skimmed through them, but there's some heavy theology here. I don't know if you noticed that. Anybody notice that? Words like foreknow, he foreknew, and predestined, and all of that, and, and people kind of flip out over those things. If you, if you can study God, well, that's the word theology, theo, God, ology, study, study of God. If you can study God without it leading you to awe and wonder, then you haven't studied God, okay? You haven't studied God. In fact, when we study, and when we study God's word from time to time, you ought to go, oh, wow, unbelievable, wonder. Yeah, I, I, don't, I can't figure that out exactly. And you're not going to be able to really under, understand it completely. The study of God is more about celebrating mystery than conquering it. I mean, I mean for instance, uh, the doctrine of, of the Trinity. Anybody figure that one out? Anybody here? Show of hands. You got it all figured out? You can come up here and explain it to everybody? Uh, no, you didn't. You didn't figure it out. You, you, no, I, I, I know everybody has these little analogies that they use, but it's still beyond those analogies. I had somebody come up last night and they said, oh, here's an analogy. And I didn't want to tell them that, no, that doesn't work, okay? I didn't want to do that, but I just kind of went along with them for a little bit and go, oh, okay, that's cute. Um, no, you're not going to figure it out. God is one in essence, three in person. Figure that one out. It's too, it's too big for our little puny brain. And so just deal with it. 
That's what, I mean, that's what the Bible's talking about. You should be awe and wonder. How does he do that? How does he pull that off? One in person, uh, one in essence, three in person. Uh, another one is the hypostatic union of, of, of Jesus. Huh? He's 100% God, 100% man. How does that work out? But the Bible teaches it. It's a mystery. How about this one? Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Where's the line drawn? Where's the line drawn? I mean, I can give you all kinds of examples of that one because that's where we're kind of, we're treading on through these verses. Um, for instance, human responsibility, Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So call upon the name of the Lord. You'll be saved. And at the same time, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Huh? What in the world? Well, which one is it? Both. Yep. It's both. I didn't mean to scream. I'm sorry. <laughs> Some of you woke up right there. And I saw, oh. Wake up. Yeah, it's, hey, it's both. It's both of those. Here's another one that will mess with your head. Acts 2.23. Jesus' death was part of God's definite plan and foreknowledge, divine sovereignty. But the people who killed him were guilty and held responsible, human responsibility. That's Acts 2.23. Read it yourself. How's that figure out? Wait, wait, wait. This is part of his plan, and yet you're going to hold them accountable and responsible? Yes. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, our God is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. I love that. I love that about our God. And so we tend to stumble over truths, and I'm going to read it in just a moment, but let me kind of give you the kind of the foundation here. These truths are not meant to be conquered but to be celebrated. These truths that we're about to read and look at are not meant to confuse you but to comfort you. And the reason we stumble over these truths is because we fight God for his job. We, we fight God for his job. We're fighting God for the driver's seat. So we gotta have all of our ducks in a row. Listen, your ducks aren't gonna be in a row, okay? When it really comes to God, you're not gonna understand everything that he's up to, but you're gonna trust him as you get to know him more and more and understand the mystery part of that. And, um, and so the, the, what I'm talking about here is that there's these, within the church, and we've got people that are Arminian and we've got people here at Desert Breeze that are Calvinistic, and I love that. I, I think that's great. We just got a cross-section of people here, and so there's these two divides. You can read on that more and really understand it. Go to gotquestions.org and kind of understand the differences between the two. I think that th their understanding is within the pale of orthodoxy. I think we can uh, debate it. We shouldn't divide over it. And uh, where are you, Pastor Ray? Somewhere in between. I mean, we teach both. We teach divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I think you need to because the Bible teaches it. And I think it's a mystery. And I think it should be. And it should create this wonder and awe in who God is. But fighting God for his job, is, it's very common for us to do that. We do that with worry, don't we? When you worry, you're fighting God for his job. Did you know that? You're really struggling. Worry is believing God is going to get it wrong. You think that you know better than God and how life has to go. Bitterness is believing God did get it wrong. Or if someone has hurt you, I know what that person who hurts me deserves and I'm gonna rehearse it in my head until they get what they deserve. See, see, that's bitterness. Or entitlement is believing God owes you a good life for the good life you've lived. And so there's this divine 
sovereignty, human responsibility. They work together like two pedals on a bike. The doctrine of divine sovereignty will chase away your anxiety if you really understand it, embrace it. The doctrine of human responsibility will chase away your complacency. So you really need to have both of those in balance and you push down whichever pedal is up and the pedal that's up in this text is divine sovereignty. Listen to what he says here. There's, it's called the golden chain of salvation. There's five, five key words for those who he foreknew. There's the first one. He also predestined, that's the next one, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. There's the third word. And those whom he called, he also justified. Fourth word, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the gospel, the gospel doesn't promise a better, better life circumstances, but a better life. The gospel doesn't promise better life circumstances, but a better life. So we're talking here about a better life. If you build your meaning and identity on temporal things, as those temporal things go, so goes your meaning and identity. Can you lose your home? Yeah. So if you build your identity on your home, you're going to lose your identity if you lose your home. Can, uh, can you lose your health? How many would say, yeah, agree with that? How many know that you, that's where you're headed? You're just not old enough to maybe figure that one out, okay? When your body starts breaking down, you go, wait, that's where I'm headed after all, you know? I'm not going to live forever. In this body, you're not. Thank God. Somebody said, thank God. Yeah. Especially when it starts breaking down. You wouldn't say that if you were like 15, I guess, or, or 30. But even Michael Phelps is looking worn out at 31 from all the races that he is. Isn't that interesting? how our bodies are like that. Can you lose your children? God forbid, there's people in our fellowship that have lost children. You don't build your identity on your kids. Can you lose your job? Can you lose your marriage? Yeah. So listen to me, if you build your identity on temporal things, so goes your identity when those things are gone. But you build your life on eternal things. These are eternal things. It's the foundation for Romans 8.28. This is what it is. For no, God sets his love on us. God sets his love on us. That's what that means. The word no literally means intimacy. For beforehand, he sets his love on us. Galatians 4.9. Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, First John 4.19, we already talked about that. We love him because he first loved us. So when Jesus says to some, I never knew you, Matthew 7.23, he doesn't mean he doesn't know about them, but that he has no relationship with them. So he, God sets his love on us. I gave you some more verses that talk about this foreknowledge of God there on your notes. You can study that more on your own. The next one is predestined, predestination. Oh, predestination. It's all over the Bible, folks. It's in the Bible. Predestination. God plans a glorious future for us. That's what it means. I'm glad that God didn't knee-jerk respond. Oh, you guys really screwed this thing up. Now, what am I going to do now? Oh, I think I'll send my son. No, he planned that from the beginning of time. That's what it tells us in Ephesians 1, 4, all the way to 11. Listen to what it says, Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world. I like that. Before I was even created, before all this place this world heavens and earth and before the mess that we find ourselves in currently happened he chose me he put his love on me he predestined 
for me to be a part of his plan. He predestined, verse 5, Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption of sons. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the will of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will. That's why we can include in there Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. He's got that all planned out for you. Here's the next one, is called. And these are all in sequence. This is how God saves us. God sets his love on us. God plans a glorious future for us. And then called, God invites us into that glorious future. The called are people who love God, verse 28. Now, what, what, what if I'm not called? How do I know if I'm called? Well, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5 tells us. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So as, as I'm talking up here, and maybe you've hung out with us for a few weeks, if there's something stirring inside your heart, that his love is beginning to take place deep in your heart, and you're going, wow, he, he, he really loves me like that? Wow, I, I want to know that love. That's him loving you. He's reaching out to you. He's drawing you in. If you feel convicted in the least bit, then why would I chase this sin when I have the Savior that can satisfy the deepest longing of my soul? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's chosen you. He's called you. He's working in your life. That's evidence of that. The next word, oh, it's a beautiful word, justified. God declares us righteous in his sight and no longer liable for our sins because of Christ's work, not ours. We talked a lot about that uh, the very first week of this series. Romans 8.28, for we know that all, th uh, that's not it. Um, how does that go? Romans, oh no, it's Romans 8.1, I'm sorry. My mind's just like going crazy right now. I need another drink of coffee. Okay, now I'm thinking clearly. Here we go, Romans 8.1. What is Romans 8.1? For there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Your sins will never, ever, ever be held against you. Past, present, future, never. He has set you free from the penalty of sin. He sets us free from the power of sin. And that includes adoption into his family. That's what he means here in verse 29, the firstborn among many brothers. He's echoing the words of verse 15. We have received the spirit of adoption. And then the next one is glorified. Your next fill in the blank. God completes the plan in eternity. Which basically, it takes us to the next point, but I need to set that up just for a minute. My best things are yet to come. So your circumstances not only can't take these good things from you, in fact, your bad circumstances will only help you understand the beauty of these truths, helping you to live out of them. Remember Hudson Taylor's quote from last weekend, it's not how great the pressure is, but where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or draws you near his heart, let it draw you near his heart. When you see self-pity or bitterness, or hopelessness begin to take place in your heart, it's opportunity, listen to me, it's opportunity to let it push you closer to him, to find the life that he wants you to live, that your bad things are working for your good, your truly good things cannot be taken from you, and the best things are yet to come. That's the foundation of your joy. That's extremely important. And, and when you do that, remember 2 Corinthians 12, 9, his power is made perfect in what? In our weakness, in our weakness. And the more you live out of who you are in Christ, these are identity statements. The more you live out of that, the more you will become like Christ and the more you will have indescribable, indestructible joy. 
another quick illustration, yes, from the Olympics. This is what I found interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this interview. David Budai and Still Johnson won a silver medal for the United States this last Monday and then proclaimed the name of Christ to a national television audience. Did you guys see that? Anybody see that? Pretty fascinating. So Budai, who still will complete the individual platform, told uh, an NBC national audience. Let me read this first, though. Budai and Johnson won silver. Did I already read that? In Okay. Synchronized swimming, giving, actually, I didn't read that. Uh, Budai, I always forget what I read. I, I, I taught this last night, and then by the time I hit the third service, I'm really spinning around in circles. But Budai and Johnson won silver in men's synchronized 10-meter platform, giving Budai his third all-time Olympic medal, and Johnson his first. Budai, who still will complete will compete in the individual platform, told an NBC national audience, there's been an enormous amount of pressure I've felt it. It's just an identity crisis. Do you hear that? It's an identity crisis. When my mind is on this diving and I'm thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. But we both know, him and Steele Johnson, that our identity is in Christ. And we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil and in front of the United States. It's been an absolutely thrilling moment for us. Uh, Still Johnson said this, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace. So so it's similar to what I shared with you, the Chariots of Fire movie, remember? Based on a true story, 1981, best picture. It was about 1924, Paris Olympics, Harold Abrahams, Eric Little. And Eric ran from his identity. Harold ran for his identity. That's how we're, we're either living for and we're going to try to make our, our identity, our marriage or our kids or any number of things or we're going we're gonna to live from our identity in Christ. Now listen to me. Um, it was interesting as you, as you watch the Olympics and Simone Biles is supposedly the greatest, and she's phenomenal, by the way. If you had a chance to watch her with gymnastics, unbelievable. Perhaps the best gymnast of all times. But let me just say this, that all of the medals of a Simone Biles or a Katie Ledecky or a, this next week you'll get a chance to see Usain Bolt uh, run all of their medals combined cannot give you the secure identity that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And by the way, they said to, about Simone Biles, they said, this is her destiny. And I want to say, no, it isn't. Her destiny is going to be either heaven or hell for all eternity. And all of those medals will not make a bit of difference if she doesn't know Jesus. And I, I pray that they do. I pray over all of these Olympians that they would encounter our Savior and know him. What good is it? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The Bible is very clear about that. Mark eight thirty six. So my best things are yet to come. I've got to walk through the implications of that. Romans, Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present 
world are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. He's saying, I consider, that was what we studied last week, I consider, consider, he compares, he thinks out, he adds it up. That's where his joy is coming from. Christianity isn't the absence of thinking, but the presence of more thinking. If you are struggling with self-pity and bitterness and hopelessness, it's because you're not thinking out the implications of what is yours through Jesus Christ. You gotta sit down, pray, think, meditate, allow the Holy Spirit to make it alive to your heart. And believe me, it will make you unbelievably joyful as you begin to sink your heart into those things. That's where his joy is coming from as he's thinking through that in his life. What you believe about the past, the present, the future determines how you live in the present. When you have a winning hand, regardless of the cards you have been dealt, you're not uptight and nervous, you just enjoy the game. We have been dealt the winning hand through Jesus Christ. And here's what it is. There are greater levels of intimacy and maturity in Christ awaiting you in this life that are beyond your wildest dreams. That's what he means when he says in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, beholding his glory, we become really whole. We become more like him. Philippians 1.6 says, the work that he began in us, he'll carry it on to completion. Now, I see people from time to time, Christians kind of bored out of their mind, like as if the Christian life is boring. Listen, there's nothing ever, ever boring about God. There's nothing ever boring about God. In him, there's always more of him to know. There's more of him to experience. There's more of him to enjoy. The Christian life is the most exhilarating, the most exciting, the most energizing life you will ever live. And that's what he's inviting us to as we are being conformed into his image more and more. We are enjoying greater levels of maturity and intimacy in Christ Jesus. Here's the last one. Life in glory with our Savior will heal all of our wounds and answer all of our questions and make everything sad come untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been lost as we live happily ever after. It'll heal. I, I mean, I didn't even know how to put it into words. That's why I got that long run-on sentence, okay? Because I'm trying to describe heaven. That's the best I can do. That's heaven. Happily ever after. He's going to heal all of our wounds, answer all of our questions, and we will live happily ever after. That's what he says in verse 30 when he says, and, and also glorified, that's what he's talking about. And, and, and most commentators, as they look at that, they go, why is that past tense? Because it hasn't happened yet. And it's past tense because it's a matter of fact. He's describing it as like, this is going to happen. You can count on it. That's why he wrote it down like that. Romans 8, 17, it says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Immeasurably spectacular promise. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And then I gave you Revelation 21, 22. Read that sometime. Gives you a little bit of a glimpse of, of heaven for you. And uh, so let me ask you this. What's the worst that can happen to you in this life? Death? No, 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 no. Listen to me. Death, death without Christ. That's the worst that could ever happen to you. The worst that can ever happen to you is not death, but death without Christ. Here's my challenge for you. If you reject God's offer of love through Jesus Christ, this life is as close to heaven as you will ever come. If you receive God's offer of love through Jesus Christ, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever come. Receive his offer of love. 
this morning through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to give you an opportunity. Maybe you've never made a confession of faith. You might be saying, well, how in the world do I do that? Well, this is how you do it. You just, you've got to, first of all, acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. You've done what all of us tend to do is that we fight God for his job. And you've got to quit fighting him for his job and just begin to say, God, I, I've sinned. I've tried to live my life in my own way. You've created me for you to live for your glory. I acknowledge my sin. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all my sins and I confess you as my Savior and Lord. I turn my life over to you. I want to enter into this relationship with you. I want to be among those who love you and are called by you. Just between you and God in your heart, just make that your prayer. And as you do that, the moment you do that, by grace through faith in Christ, you become a part of his family. And then if that's really happened, you're gonna begin to live that up. You're gonna wanna come to church and read your Bible and you're gonna wanna hang out with other Christians and really grow in the grace and in the knowledge of him. So God, I pray for those that are doing that this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe many are doing it and rededicating their life to you. I pray, God, seal the deal with them. Let them see the importance of this decision for you, that it's not just done once, but it's something that we live out. We live out each and every day of our lives. Father God, we thank you that by grace through faith in Jesus, our bad things will work for our good. Our truly good things can't be taken from us and our best things are yet to come. May these astounding promises be the foundation of our joy, chasing away anxiety and complacency as they become more and more, not just clear to our minds, but real to our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.